Thanks for downloading the Centre for the History of Medicine in Ireland podcast. In this episode, as part of the healthcare system's Regional and Comparative Perspectives in Britain and Ireland, 1850-1960 conference, the keynote speaker, Professor John Stewart of Glasgow Caledonian University. His paper was entitled, Healthcare Systems in Britain and Ireland in the 19th and 20th Centuries, the International, National and Subnational Contexts. When I accepted the invitation, I kind of came up with this rather grandiose title, I think, and it, it seemed a good idea at the time. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to kind of uh, quite live up to it, but, um, but here's hoping. Well, earlier this year, I was lucky enough to be a visiting fellow at the University of Auckland in New Zealand, and as such, I gave a number of talks, one of which was on the recently uh, passed uh, reforms to the National Health Service in England. These have been, as I'm sure many of you know, incredibly controversial uh, incredibly destructive of the basis of socialised medicine in, in, in England and Wales, or at least in England, uh, and uh, badly handled the whole bit. So it was a burning topic, as it were, for people interested in contemporary health policy in New Zealand. I suggested that taking a Scottish perspective on these English reforms was illuminating for several reasons. First, the English reforms further highlighted the fact that Scotland has always had, uh, even before political devolution, in the late 1990s, an autonomous healthcare system. Secondly, perceived problems about healthcare organisation and outcomes uh, were among the drivers within Scotland for political devolution in the 1990s, with the Scots being resistant to, for example, uh, the introduction of internal markets in the National Health Service, and so, uh, in the slogan of the time, uh, the, the people who were arguing for devolution uh, suggested there should be Scottish solutions to Scottish problems. Third, uh, with political devolution, there were further policy divergences between Scotland and England, uh, and indeed between England and Wales. Fourth, uh, the present English reforms have been explicitly rejected as a model for Scotland uh, by both the Scottish Government uh, and indeed the Scottish public, to, to judge by opinion poll evidence. So in my talk in Auckland, and from all this, I suggested that it's possible, uh, given that Scotland will have a, an independence referendum in a couple of years' time, uh, that health policy will have been crucial uh, not only uh, in advancing political devolution, but also in bringing about the demise of the United Kingdom, uh, at least in its present form. This particular example il illustrates a number of points which I'd like to try and enlarge on in the rest of this talk. First of all, we have a purportedly unitary state, the United Kingdom, uh, in which different forms of healthcare provision exist. Second, uh, from a slightly different perspective, we have one nation, Scotland, if Scotland is indeed a nation, uh, learning, uh, albeit negatively, uh, from another, uh, England. Policy knowledge, in other words, crosses the English-Scottish uh, border. Third, you may have noted that I, that I talked of Scotland and Wales diverging, uh, each in their own way, uh, from England. We could look at this in another way by saying that two of the smaller nations of the United Kingdom have, in fact, uh, much in common in health policy terms, and this might tell us something about the way uh, health and social policy uh, is enacted uh, in smaller political uh, entities. Fourth, I think it reminds us that healthcare policy is highly cont contentious, uh, as of course President Obama uh, has been finding out. 
in passing, just to throw something else into the mix, uh, it's worth noting the problems federal governments have in introducing uh, nationwide health policies. Uh, for every Massachusetts with proto-Obamacare, uh, there's southern states like Alabama. But as we'll see later, uh, this is not necessarily a case just of American exceptionalism. exceptionalism. Uh, other countries have subnational differences too, uh, as I already tried to indicate. So what I'm going to do is talk briefly uh, about the, uh, the national context uh, of health policy formation. Then I'll move on to the international context uh, before saying something, uh, before finishing uh, with something about the subnational dimension. As far as possible, I'll illustrate what I have to say by examples from Britain and Ireland, although particularly in the part about the international context, uh, I'll also draw on examples from further afield. I should say at this point uh, that I know much less about Irish than I do about British healthcare systems, uh, so I apologise in advance for any uh, egregious errors. More positively, I think, all this is uh, intended uh, as a means of thinking about how we treat healthcare provision in our historical writing and how we can perhaps supplement our national histories uh, with insights uh, from the international and subnational contexts uh, and comparisons. One of the other things I was asked to do when I was in New Zealand, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I was quite taken with New Zealand, so I'm going to refer to it a couple more times. And, and I've, I've got, somewhere I've got uh, endless photographs of uh, uh, volcanic mud, if anybody's interested in looking at that, but uh, I'm sure you won't be. Uh, but anyway, when I was there, uh, I was asked to, to lecture to an undergraduate uh, class, taking a course uh, in the history of the country's welfare state. My brief was to put this in an international context and this got me thinking about how we write the history uh, of healthcare uh, and welfare more generally. Although, of course, there are exceptions, uh, the work of E.P. Hennock uh, being a case in point, uh, as is that of uh, Virginia Crossman's colleague, uh, Glenn O'Hara. Uh, I mean, you can see what these two things are about from the slide. Uh, much writing in the history of social policy takes the nation state uh, as the defining political entity uh, and space in which social policy is enacted uh, and implemented. This is, of course, understandable. It is, after all, uh, uh, nation states or national governments which legislate for and carry out state-sponsored social policy. They may, of course, delegate some of this to local government uh, or to voluntary or even for profit bodies. Uh, but the essential point remains social welfare, such as healthcare, takes place uh, within national boundaries. Uh, let's go back to the example of the British NHS. It was indeed the case that there were, in, the, in fact, three National Health Service Acts uh, in the 1940s uh, for England and Wales, uh, for Ulster. Uh, and for Scotland. The last of these, that for Scotland, uh, was important both in recognising legal and historical precedence and in the much longer term uh, allowing for healthcare to be politically devolved in the late 1990s. And there were important differences between the two acts. Nonetheless, the two systems, England and Wales and Scotland, uh, were virtually uh, identical twins, or triplets if you add in 
than Northern Ireland Act. Both Acts, both the English and Welsh Act and the Scottish Act, were passed by the only UK mainland parliament of the time, uh, that in Westminster, and both uh, systems were funded by the Treasury uh, out of general taxation, uh, as indeed uh, was the case for Northern Ireland. From a patient's point of view, no difference should, uh, I emphasise should for reasons I'll come back to, no difference should uh, have been discernible whether you fell ill in London or in Edinburgh, uh, just as there should have been no difference between, say, Cardiff, Belfast or Sheffield. This overall situation uh, prevailed until relatively recently, until essentially until devolution in the 1990s. So one might argue that here we find a solid case for stressing the primary role of the nation state. And I think there's also another dimension uh, worth considering here. Central to the creation of the NHS uh, was that it was to be universal, comprehensive, and free at the point of consumption. Consumption of the patient's point of view. The universal aspect of the service meant that it could be accessed by anyone uh, who was a British citizen. The NHS was, of course, uh, also a key component uh, of post-war reconstruction in Britain uh, and for the, the ruling Labour Party, uh, the creation of the New Jerusalem. What I'm getting at here is the role of the NHS in creating a particular form of British national identity uh, and British citizenship. It seems to me very revealing that opinion poll evidence shows that one of the things that makes people most proud to be British, not English or Irish or Scottish or Welsh, but British, uh, is the National Health Service. So when thinking about healthcare uh, in a national context, we might want to think not just of policy enactment and application, uh, but also what it tells us about the broader society and how it might contribute to notions of national identity uh, and social solidarity. I recently read a book, the book by Marie Coleman, I recently read a book on the history of the Irish hospital sweepstake and was struck by how, uh, its problems notwithstanding, it could be seen as a cohesive force uh, in Irish society, with, uh, as the author puts it, uh, with it being, as the author puts it, a landmark institution uh, in the new Irish state. Similarly, if one looks at the Scandinavian countries, here too, health and, welfare, health and welfare provision is seen as central to the various national identities uh, and something to be protected against uh, supranational uh, intervention, uh, for example, uh, by the European Union. So there is a, an obvious case uh, for, for, for the nation state and how we think about welfare and how we look at the history of uh, healthcare provision. Nonetheless, uh, seeing the history of healthcare and welfare through the lens of the nation-state is, I would suggest, to gain only a partial picture. And I now want to say something about the international context in which British and Irish healthcare provision operated in the 19th and 20th centuries. One of the most famous attempts to classify late 20th century welfare states uh, was that of Esping Anderson, uh, famously of course, uh, in his Three Worlds uh, of Welfare Capitalism. Esping Anderson's welfare regimes, as he called them, uh, were the social democratic, uh, with high levels uh, of state provision and ta uh, taxation, the corporatist, corporatist 
uh, with high levels of provision, uh, but with responsibilities often delegated uh, to bodies such as the Catholic Church, and the liberal, uh, with the residualist state service, uh, services uh, reserved for the poorest in society. Esping Anderson has been uh, much criticised, of course, but at least in some respects, he can help us think uh, critically and historically about healthcare provision. So, for instance, the British welfare state, uh, which of course is disintegrating at the moment, but let's just call it a British welfare state from the post-war point of view. Uh, the British welfare state is, uh, common perception to the contrary, largely liberal or residualist, with strong elements of continuity uh, from the preceding welfare system. The exception is the NHS, which ties in very closely uh, with Esping Anderson's social democratic model, uh, and thus with the Scandinavian welfare states. And I think this is quite a useful way of looking at the history of post-war uh, post healthcare provision in Britain uh, as a social democratic project. Uh, and if we've got time, I'll come back to that later. But return, to return to Esping Anderson and his typologies, I'm aware that there's a debate among uh, Irish historians and social scientists about how far, uh, if at all, Ireland fits in with these, with, with these particular typologies. But I think in very general terms, the attention paid by Esping Anderson uh, to the role of religious bodies in welfare provision is at least to some degree uh, pertinent to the Irish situation and thereby gives commonalities uh, with other nations. And, and it's noticeable from the abstract uh, that religion crops up uh, in a number of uh, tomorrow's papers. More recently, or more recently than Esping Anderson at any rate, uh, Stephen King and I edited a volume in welfare per, uh, provision in peripheral European nations, including Scotland, uh, Ireland, uh, and Wales uh, welfare peripheries. Part of our argument uh, was that such peripheral nations or in many cases territories which saw themselves as nations but had not yet achieved nationhood, uh, were relatively homogenous, uh, were relatively solidaristic, were often heavily influenced by organised religion, and frequently had difficult geographical terrain uh, and thinly spread uh, populations. We then suggested that this could lead to similar forms of health and welfare provision across these nations around the edge of Northern Europe, our approach was, uh, I think, uh, highly problematic. I've kind of brought most of the argument about it, I think, now. Uh, I'll, uh, like Esping Anderson's, it was problematic for different reasons. But both approaches can still, I think, be mined for certain insights when considering the history of healthcare. I've already mentioned the, the role of religion. It seems likely, probable, whatever, uh, that religion will have a a greater impact on a relatively small society uh, in terms of population size at least. But the role of geography uh, is also worth uh, bearing in mind. So for instance, in the highlands and islands of Scotland, formal healthcare provision uh, was virtually uh, non-existent uh, under the poor law, uh, and the region's problems uh, led to the introduction uh, as a result of the Dewar Commission set up uh, exactly 100 years ago, we're celebrating uh, in Scotland the 100th uh, anniversary of the Dewar Commission, 
uh, what the Dewar Commission, the outcome of the Dewar Commission was, uh, was the creation uh, of the Highlands and Island Medical Service, a sort of quasi-socialised uh, medical service. Nonetheless, so, so, I mean, there's something happening even 100 years ago, so well, way before the National Health Service. And even today, there are particular health problems associated with the region uh, connected to its remoteness. The more general point, though, uh, is that seeing uh, national health and welfare systems as part of wider health and welfare regimes or families or whatever you want to call them is at the very least illuminating for comparative purposes uh, but might also tell us about how those health and welfare systems come into being in the first place uh, and develop subsequently. But what I want to move on to are more concrete examples uh, of the ways in which the international con uh, context and overseas influence, influences contributed, uh, positively or negatively, uh, to health and welfare developments in 19th and 20th century uh, Britain and Ireland. I'll start by saying that this seems to me a seriously under-researched field, but it is still necessary to show uh, some examples of cross-national influence. So, for example, uh, I mentioned a few moments ago uh, that it's possible to see the British National Health Services as according with more with a social democratic model of welfare provision uh, than other uh, parts of the British welfare state. It might be significant then uh, that uh, the leader of the Socialist Medical Association, a body close to my heart, uh, a group uh, of doctors, left-wing doctors, uh, which for a long period uh, influenced Labour Party health policy, uh, went to Social Democratic Sweden uh, in the 1930s, at the time which, in other words, Sweden was beginning the construction uh, of its welfare state. And on his return, this guy, who's called Somerville Hastings, declared its hospital system to be uh, the best in the world. Consequently, the journal associated with um, the Socialist Medical Association, a, a kind of very useful research resource for people researching this particular period, the 30s and 40s, a journal called Medicine Today and Tomorrow, ran numerous articles uh, on the Swedish health care system. And in the post-war era, uh, the Labour intellectual Tony Crossland, uh, in his seminal work, uh, The Future of Socialism, uh, noted that in contrast to Britain, uh, very few people in Sweden used private health or education services, uh, partly because the latter uh, were of such high standard, the Swedish services, that is. It's no coincidence, of course, uh, that Crossland's work uh, was published around the time of the Gillibo report, uh, which was showing that the NHS uh, was uh, seriously underfunded, or at least underfunded. If we again go back to the founding of the NHS, uh, another uh, incident illustrates my point of the international context, although in fact in this particular case uh, nothing much came of it in the end, but it is again a kind of revealing uh, case study, I think. In early 1949, uh, the newspaper the Chicago Tribune ran a story headlined British Socialism Runs on United States Money. This was in response to a speech to the United Nations, the recently created United Nations, uh, by a Labour government which emphasised, uh, among other things, his government's commitment to, to a complete national health service. What was going on here was that many Americans uh, were appalled 
that funding supplied by the Marshall Plan uh, should be used to ends uh, of which they were fundamentally disapproved, uh, including socialised healthcare. And of course there are distant echoes of this uh, in contemporary right-wing po uh, American uh, political discourse. The claim that Obama's healthcare scheme is both socialist uh, and European. The point is, though, that while uh, the British may well be, as I suggested earlier on, uh, proud of the uh, NHS, and uh, from my perspective, as they should be, uh, it can be still uh, it still can be argued uh, that it was set up uh, with the proceeds of American capitalism. But uh, there's a serious point here about the NHS. It's debatable whether uh, all this could have done. Uh, direct, uh, all of us could have happened directly or indirectly uh, without the for, uh, support of American capitalism. Other forms of American capitalism also helped uh, shape healthcare provision in both uh, Britain and Ireland, uh, not least in the form of the great philanthropic bodies, which, uh, especially uh, after the First World War, uh, channeled much of their resources into health and welfare projects abroad. So, for instance, as uh, Greta Jones has shown, uh, the Rockefeller Foundation, uh, despite its uh, evident frustrations with the country, put resources into public health uh, and into medical education uh, in the newly um, uh, independent Ireland. The Commonwealth Fund of New York, meanwhile, another large philanthropic body, uh, poured considerable resources uh, into mental health services for young people which were eventually to be embedded uh, in the post-war uh, welfare state. And to return briefly to an earlier point, uh, Tom Feeney has recently shown how the introduction of similar services for mental health services for young people uh, in post-war Ireland uh, derived from a complicated uh, interaction uh, between church and state. And this is coming out in social history of medicine soon. Uh, more generally, we could... Uh, in this international context, we could point to the proliferation of international health bodies, official and uh, voluntary, uh, from the uh, late 19th century onwards, uh, which encouraged the international uh, exchange of ideas. So as the American historian Daniel Rogers puts it, proposals for social reform were, uh, quote, central to movements of politics and ideas throughout the North Atlantic. In consequence, he continues, such social politics had their origins not in its nation-state containers, not in a hypothesized Europe, nor an equally imagined America, uh, but in uh, the world uh, between them. Uh, Roger's prose style is even worse than mine, which I think is kind of slightly reassuring, but the, the essence of that quote is that ideas are floating about all over uh, the North Atlantic uh, from the progressive era onwards, from the early part of the 20th century onwards. And there's a lot in this, I think. It's an interesting book, despite the Protestant. But what I want to do now is to focus uh, on an international structure uh, very firmly rooted in Britain, uh, and of which Ireland was until the early 1920s a part, uh, namely the Empire. If there was a general international flow of people and ideas about welfare, as, as Daniel Rogers suggests, uh, then this was even more the case between Britain uh, her colonies and her dominions. My final, and I promise it is the final, my final New Zealand anecdote. My host in Auckland uh, and the leader of the undergraduate course uh, on which I uh, gave a lecture 
uh, was the, the medical historian Linda Bryder. We're at the very early stages of a project on the inter-empire uh, flow of medical knowledge, uh, and we already know about Britain-New uh, Zealand exchange of ideas uh, and practitioners in the field of child health, uh, both mental uh, and physical. Uh, as Bryder has shown uh, in an earlier article in, in the book uh, edited by uh, Pellman Mandelbrook, uh, as, as shown in this essay, sorry, uh, one of the key figures here in, in the field of child health uh, was Dr. Frederick Truby King, um, a New Zealander trained in medicine at Edinburgh uh, and one of the key organisers uh, of a body called Babies of the Empire Society. And as Bryder pointed out to me in an email the other week, uh, in 1938, uh, New Zealand's Social Security Act set up a free public hospital service, including free antenatal and maternity care, and provision whereby fees paid to general practitioners could be reclaimed from the state. A very interesting act, this 1938 Social Security Act. While I haven't been able to follow this through uh, fully as yet, it seems unlikely that British civil servants were unaware of this development, not least because those in the Ministry of Health uh, were, at exactly this time, the late 1930s, drawing up plans uh, for some form of socialised medicine. Those involved in medical politics certainly knew what was going on, uh, as the British Medical Association, uh, the body which also represented New Zealand's doctors, uh, it was called the New Zealand branch of the British Medical Association at this time, sent one of its leading members, uh, Sir Henry Brackenbury, uh, on a six-week uh, long fact-finding mission to New Zealand in early 1938. Uh, when the act was actually passed later in the year, uh, it was denounced in the British Medical Journal as mo motivated by, quote, some abstract socialist principle uh, or ideal. It's interesting to reflect on this, I think, uh, in light of the BME's resistance to another Labour government, this time in Britain itself, uh, some half dozen years later. So while it's been argued, uh, including by myself, uh, that Britain's NHS was unique and original in its funding and scope, uh, it looks like this may have to be, uh, at the very least, revised, this argument. A bit more concretely, perhaps, uh, Anne Crowther and Marguerite Dupre have shown how Scottish medical schools uh, trained a disproportionate number of doctors uh, from the mid-19th century onwards, uh, with students uh, drawn uh, from the UK and abroad, and then exported huge numbers of them uh, to the Empire, uh, the recently mentioned uh, Truby King uh, being a case uh, in point. This was important not just in terms of personnel, but also in spreading ideas and practice, uh, such as that uh, of Lister uh, on antisepsis. And what Crowther and Dupree argue was, of course, that these students from all over the Empire uh, including Ireland at that time, of course, uh, were uh, being trained by Lister in Glasgow and spreading his ideas right throughout the empire when, when they returned home or whatever. Similarly, my colleague at Glasgow Caledonian, who's called Carly Kehoe, uh, has shown how posts such as naval surgeon were crucial to the Irish Catholic middle class uh, in the middle of the 19th century and gaining access uh, both uh, to the medical profession uh, and to the empire. 
Uh, and how article on this is, is coming out, as you can see, also in social history of medicine uh, sometime in the near future. Ideas flowed back from the Empire too, of course, uh, hence in part the setting up uh, of schools uh, of tropical medicine uh, in London and also in Liverpool. Before that. Before? Oh, sorry. Kel faux pas. Sorry, I didn't realise that actually. Okay. Uh, as well as the influence of Truby uh, King uh, on British child rearing. So you've got this kind of very, uh, the long and short of this, you've got this very kind of dynamic situation where ideas are networked right throughout uh, the empire and, and ideas about healthcare and, uh, and so on and so forth. I think the Irish case is particularly instructive uh, in the imperial context. I hope, Virginia, I'm going to get your argument right here, and I'm sure you'll tell me if I'm. Uh, misquoting you, misrepresenting uh, you. In, this, uh, in Virginia's chapter in uh, Welfare Peri uh, Peripheries, she's argued that the, the Irish poor law developed in a particularly, uh, a particular, sorry, uh, and largely unexpected way. These included into areas such as public health and dispensaries not embraced by the English and Scottish poor laws, uh, as well as parallel among them, of course, in specialising areas such as care of the sick. There are also close links uh, between state-provided welfare services uh, and those of the Catholic Church, something hardly likely to exist in Scotland, uh, England or Wales, uh, at least in the kind of form uh, that it did in Ireland. All this, she suggests, heightened the sense uh, of, ha uh, of Irish difference. So while hardly an exact historical parallel, we nonetheless have here a not dissimilar situation to that I described at the outset with regard to contemporary uh, Scotland. Health and welfare policy uh, as a contributory factor uh, to a movement for political separation uh, and possibly uh, divorce. So the empire as an international phenomenon uh, was important in health and welfare policy and practice but in a complicated way, uh, full of unintended consequences. And from what I can further gather uh, from the work of uh, scholars such as Sophia Carey and Mel Cousins, post-independence Irish social policy continued to be shaped by both colonial legacy uh, and the influence of the church. Uh, the latter, of course, uh, if it comes to that, uh, another uh, international body. So we need to think of the history of healthcare provision uh, in both national uh, and international contexts, uh, a demanding challenge. To make it even more demanding, uh, we need also to take the sub-national dimension uh, into account. Uh, we've already seen some examples of this uh, in, the case, in the case of Scotland, which uh, has had, uh, since the Union of 1707, uh, relative autonomy in fields such as welfare uh, and including uh, healthcare provision. In looking through the abstracts for this conference, uh, I noticed that we're going to have a paper uh, tomorrow from uh, Steve Thompson uh, on South Wales. And this reminded me that a few years ago, uh, Steve King and I uh, did something on the poor law medical services uh, of a particular part of South Wales. And the one characteristic of this was that not only were such services not very widespread, but also that they, or at least the funding of them, was portrayed as a foreign imposition, an Anglo-Saxon imposition. 
uh, and subject thereby uh, to quite considerable local resistance. Uh, one project with which I was also involved in, uh, uh, Sean mentioned at the beginning, uh, until recently, uh, was a collaborative investigation of municipal health services, and especially hospitals uh, in interwar uh, England and Wales. The very use of the word municipal uh, reminds us, of course, that while a Ministry of Health had been set up at the end of the First World War, uh, nonetheless public sector health services such as hospitals uh, remained in the hands uh, of local authorities and local committees. The particular focus of our study, uh, which is about in that, the second bullet point book, as it were, um, the particular focus of our study was the aftermath of the 1929 Local Government Act, which allowed certain types of local authorities to take over, uh, most notably, the poor law hospital services. In part, this was an attempt to remove the stigma associated with the poor law, uh, with poor law medical services uh, and to provide a greater degree of uniformity of provision uh, of what up until that point uh, had been a highly disaggregated and diverse situation. As it turned out, uh, not all local authorities availed of them, themselves of this opportunity. Already then, a source of, uh, of difference as well as a sign of weakness uh, on the part uh, of the central authority. The Ministry of Health started off quite powerfully and then went downhill very rapidly uh, in the interwar period as an agent of government, as it were. But what was also evident from our research was that while, some, while expenditure on hospitals and other medical services rose fairly consistently over the course of the 1930s, uh, nonetheless, uh, there were uh, important differences uh, at local level. We tried to explain this uh, in the first instance through politics. But while this was important, uh, it was far from the whole explanation. Two of our local authority case studies uh, had a fairly consistent Labour Party presence, but behaved very differently uh, in terms of provision. Similarly, another of our case studies, West Hartlepool County, County Borough, uh, had a consistently right-wing administration uh, and very poor hospital and health services, uh, at least as judged by expenditure. But we also know from associated research that the London County Council uh, took immediate advantage of the 1928, uh, sorry, 1929 Act uh, and uh, pursued a very vigorous uh, hospitals policy. It did so at least up until 1934, when Labour took over, under Conservative leadership. So the contrast here is with this very frugal, to put it politely, West Hartlepool uh, County Borough, uh, under the Conservatives, uh, a very dynamic Conservative uh, administration uh, in London. In short, there was a huge diversity uh, across the municipal sector, the intentions of the 1929 Act notwithstanding, uh, and I think that looking beyond politics to factors such as the role uh, of medical officers of health and local politicians and the interaction with other forms of healthcare provision uh, is something we've positive that we've taken from our uh, collecting uh, research. It would be intriguing to discover, uh, maybe somebody has done this, but um, it would be intriguing to discover whether with such points in mind uh, this could be applied uh, to 19th century Ireland. We know, for instance, 
Uh, the poor law authorities were politicized in the course of the 19th century, uh, but it was unclear, uh, to me at least, as whether we know how, if at all, uh, this affected local policy and provision. I think one of the things that's been quite good about the municipal medicine project is not necessarily our outcomes, although they're okay, but the kind of debate that we've prompted. So uh, Martin Gorski has criticised our methodology, a very good article, actually, and there's been other uh, articles around the topic. But the whole point is, I mean, I think there's something quite interesting about municipal provision, uh, and uh, we've kind of tended to, to neglect it uh, our historiographical uh, peril. But to return briefly to the LCC, by the late 1930s under the Labour, it was claiming to be the largest single provider of hospital beds in the world and for the, the basis of a more widely applicable model uh, for socialised medicine. Indeed, the Labour Party, up until the appointment of an Iron Bevan as Minister of Health in 1945, was committed to any new health service being based on local authorities. And it's notable that among the critics of Bevan's ultimate plan for the NHS uh, were the LCC itself and those uh, Conservative and Labour who had served on it. Uh, most notably among the latter, uh, Bevan's cabinet colleague, uh, Herbert Morrison. But Bevan was hostile to local provision, arguing not only that it was inefficient, but that there was too much divergence across the sector. If the NHS was going to live up to the universal dimension of universal, comprehensive and free, then any new service had to operate in more or less the same way everywhere. But the NHS was never a monolithic command and control institution, uh, the claims of new labour notwithstanding. For one thing, at foundation, it had overall a tripartite structure consisting of to put it simply and crudely, hospital services, primary care, and those aspects of healthcare which remained in local authority hands, and usually under the control of that very 19th century creation, uh, the medical officer of health. This was highly problematic uh, in that it meant that the NHS was not a fully integrated service with detrimental consequences for coordination and cooperation uh, between its three uh, component parts, and this caused great organisational upheaval, particularly in England and Wales, actually, uh, in the 1970s, to no uh, great benefit, it seems to me. But I want to focus in particular on hospitals and on the question of regionalism. Tomorrow, Sally Shear is going to be talking about the origins of this idea, but let me make a few brief comments about the 1930s through to the 1970s. If the municipal hospital sector was diverse in the interwar period, then this was even more the case, uh, and virtually by definition, uh, in the voluntary uh, sector. Nearby voluntary hospitals might, for instance, uh, have separate ambulance services while providing similar services uh, for a similar population. Clearly this was, uh, apart from anything else, inefficient. By the late 1930s, uh, and the Sankey report of 1937 was crucial here, uh, there were proposals for greater coordination between voluntary hospitals uh, and indeed with the municipal sector uh, on a regional basis. 
five more minutes. Uh, the war intervened, uh, and what we then have uh, is the emergency hospital service, uh, later the emergency medical service, organised from the centre, but operating with a regional administrative structure. Roughly speaking, uh, it was this framework which formed the basis of the new NHS's regional hospital boards, created in the late 1940s uh, and surviving uh, through uh, to the early 1970s. But allocating resources to these, pro uh, these boards proved highly problematic. Uh, as John Welshman has uh, shown in the, the, uh, an essay also in the uh, volume edited by Pelling and Mandelbrot, uh, as Welshman has shown, the Sheffield Regional Hospital Board was always at uh, or near the foot of the table uh, in terms of funding was received. This was known, uh, but not acknowledged as a problem, uh, until the late 1960s and the creation uh, in 1975 uh, of the Resource Allocation Working Party. Of course, the very name of that body tells you that there is a problem, as it were. What these differences meant was that in practice, uh, and particularly when compared with affluent areas such as uh, Oxford, the Sheffield region had, for instance, fewer consultants uh, as well as a, a, a shortage of junior doctors. I said earlier that from a patient's perspective, healthcare under the NHS should have been delivered equally, irrespective of where one lived. We now have to qualify this uh, on account of these subnational differences. These also, incidentally, uh, raise important questions about how to deal uh, with resource allocations, uh, resource allocation at these levels. Should it simply be on the basis of population, or should factors such as socioeconomic profile, age profile, morbidity and mortality rates, or even geography be factored in? One of the contrasts that, that Welshman makes is that, or one of the points Welshman makes is that Sheffield, uh, in socioeconomic terms, is pretty poor. Uh, Oxford is pretty affluent. Uh, but often, uh, Oxford has you know, better uh, resources allocated to it. So as I say, it, it does raise important questions about how uh, resources uh, for um, healthcare should be allocated at some uh, subnational level. And again, the, the, the issue of geography, uh, what I'm a bit of my bonnet about this, I think, but I mean, the issue of geography is quite an interesting one. And if we return to the, uh, the Scots, the latter have always argued that higher per capita health expenditure supplied by the UK Treasury uh, is justified in Scotland on the grounds of the cost and difficulty of providing health services to remote, thinly populate, populated regions uh, with difficult weather uh, and uh, travel conditions. Uh, the Highlands and Islands issue again, uh, which is an ongoing issue uh, for the Scottish Government. More generally though, examining healthcare at a sub-national level, I think, throws up issues uh, which can be easily missed uh, when, if, if we're just taking the macro picture, if we're just looking at parliamentary debates or official papers or white papers uh, or whatever, this kind of sub-national dimension is important and, and one, again, uh, well worth opening up, I think. To conclude then, when I first started studying the history of British social welfare, uh, among the standard texts uh, were works such as Morris Bruce's The Coming of the Welfare State uh, and Derek Fraser's uh, The Evolution of the British Welfare State. Admirable works in their times 
they were nonetheless very much products of those times, as of course all pieces of historical writing are. They were Whiggish in tone, seeing the creation and development of social welfare provision as linear, uh, as increasingly the function of the state, as benign and well-intentioned, as promoting a degree of social inequality, and as thereby solving some of the more obvious social problems uh, engendered uh, by industrial society. To put it another way, uh, they were in the spirit of the post-war consensus uh, and the writing, writing of thinkers such as T.H. Marshall and, I think a bit more problematically, uh, Richard Titmuss. We now have a more nuanced historical picture of welfare provision in that, for instance, we have come to recognise the significance of the mixed economy of welfare, uh, the motives for welfare provision are complex, the continuities as well as change uh, are more important, and the uh, modes of funding are about more than simply the choice between social insurance and general taxation. Uh, to return to an early example, I think the Irish hospital sweeps, sweepstakes uh, issue is, is an interesting, actually quite intellectually challenging uh, issue. This obviously time found it intellectually challenging. But we still need, uh, in my view, to pay more attention to the international and subnational contexts and frameworks in which healthcare uh, was historically uh, informed. We know a fair amount, in fact, about subnational provision, but need to use it more. Uh, you need to use it to more critically examine historic patterns of diversity, uh, the place of historical contingency. I say that because in, in one of the case studies we did in municipal medicine, everything that happened was due to one individual, by and large, one particularly dynamic medical officer of health, who, I mean, I can explain that later, it sounds great man story of history stuff, it's not, but he just did everything, that was perfectly straightforward in a way. So historical contingency comes into uh, and also, I, th I think we need to think about this whole issue of health inequalities within uh, the nation-state. At international level, we perhaps need to recognise a bit more uh, developments and influences beyond national boundaries, uh, many of which uh, were in fact uh, known at the time. So for, for when my final example, when school meals and medical services uh, were introduced in Edwardian Britain, a significant volume of evidence was presented from countries like France. If politicians and policy makers in past time uh, were aware of what was going on in other countries and prepared to admit that it might have some influence in their own actions and, and practices, uh, then I think we should, uh, uh, we should too, we should be historically aware uh, of these much broader contexts uh, as well as the subnational ones uh, in which health policy and welfare policy uh, is created. Thank you.